Well, obviously, the facts that surround any death penalty case are tragic. Puts a spotlight on the, the ripple effect of violence. There's simply no question as to his guilt. Um, he hunted down and slaughtered two people in cold blood. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multi-dimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello, and welcome to best case, worst case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer for CBS's Criminal Minds. With me today is my co-host. Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes coming to you from... Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on assignment. That's great. Well, welcome, Francie. And today we have a very special guest back, Kirk Nurmi, the attorney who defended the infamous Jody Arias. How are you doing, Kirk? Good, Jim. Good to be with you and Francie today. Thanks, great. Kirk. Well, thank you for coming back. And we really hope that um, our listeners enjoyed the perspective that you bring to best case, worst case, because it's important. The justice system has many different facets, and you represent a very important part of that system. So today, we'd like to talk to you about your worst case, a case from your career that is the lowest of the low, the one that you that really stands out in your mind that affects you in some way. And so we'd like to talk to you about the case and then its effects on you and, and how, how it went down. So could you tell us what kind of case you would consider to be your worst case? Sure. This was a death penalty case, and it'll probably surprise uh, you and, and your listeners that the, the, the defendant in this case was not Jody Arias. Okay, yes. Jody Arias' case was certainly, I'm sure, a very difficult case for you, but it sounds like this case was even worse than the Jody Aries case. And boy, I know because I, I watched much of, like the rest of the world, watched much of that trial and certainly of Jody Aries's testimony and the back and forth and the contention that went on during that trial. So for this to be your worst case and for it to be worse than Jody Aries, uh, it must be a really bad case. Well, I tell you, one of the things that... Um... I should explain kind of as a preface to what makes a best case or a worst case for a defense attorney um, often relates to the verdict. 
the outcome in the case. And um, ultimately, this was the worst case uh, because it was my first death penalty case, and my client my client received a sentence of death, and that um, impacted me greatly, and impacts me greatly to this day. Well, Kirk, I'm sure that is very difficult. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, where was were you a public defender when you got this case? I was. Uh, the public defender's office had. Uh, a capital unit, people that just worked on capital cases, and each um, defendant by the uh, the American Bar Association's regulation that Arizona incorporated uh, was was to have two attorneys, uh, a mitigation specialist, and an investigator working on their case. When I left uh, doing sex crimes uh, and moved to the capital unit, this case was um, already in progress, and I was assigned as the uh, co-counsel uh, on this case. So that is kind of how it came to me. It was a it was a case of ca- capital cases are uh, almost overwhelming in the volume of material. A defense attorney is required to look at someone's uh, psychological profile and background from conception till the day they are sentenced. So uh, I transferred over to this unit and had a plethora of materials to look through um, regarding the case, uh, both the case and my client's background. Well, Kirk, you mentioned that this was your first death penalty case. What was it like for you making the decision to transfer to dealing with capital cases? What, What did that mean for you as a person? Well, I think as a person, I'd always been opposed to the death penalty. I always felt like that if killing is wrong, then it's it doesn't matter to whom is whom the killer is. The killer always feels justified at the time of the killing. So it was kind of an evolution in my career, um, something, an opportunity that was offered to me um, and a step that I decided to take just because of my um, personal opposition to the death penalty. Well, I know that Francie and I, we've, had, uh, we've already published our, um, our discussion on this topic, and we fall on different sides of the fence of this argument. But for today, I would just like to explore what, what were your reasons for being opposed to the death penalty? Well, as I said, one of them was personal, just the morality of the fact that, that killing is wrong and Uh, It is wrong regardless of whether it is done by a government entity or or a person uh, on the street, because I think in both circumstances, the killer can convince themselves that their actions are justified. The other opposition I have to it, uh, one might be more political in terms of the role of government, but the other is also the fact that um, it can sentences, death sentences can be wrongly imposed. Um, we saw this with a couple of different individuals, and one that stands out to, in my mind uh, here in Arizona is the Ray Crone case where prosecutors use faulty uh, dental impression records and junk science behind it in order to send a innocent man to death row. Fortunately for Mr. Crone, he was never, ex- he was never executed. Yeah, that that can be something that under the system could happen 
deliberately or inadvertently. I mean, people, I'm sure, believed that that science was actual hard science at the time, and it turns out that that it has been undermined. Of course, DNA has has come leaps and bounds in the last 20 years, and because of that, they've been able to sort of, um, well, prove people innocent as opposed to actually innocent, I mean, as opposed to um, not even just not guilty. But why don't you tell us a little bit about the beginning of the case when you started familiarizing yourself with the facts of the case and, and, and what were those facts? Well, obviously, the facts that surround any death penalty case are tragic and just as tragic or more often than not just as tragic are the circumstances of a, a client's history, um, particularly their childhood that have brought them to this point. But the victim in this case uh, had uh, as much as you can run away from home at the age of 17 or 18, ran away from home after there was a trauma uh, in her life. She wound up in Arizona uh, and in order to make money, she wound up uh, dancing, uh, adult dancing, erotic dancing, whatever uh, term you want to put on it. Um, she wound up getting herself uh, involved with the wrong people. And by all accounts, my client met her uh, after she had been beaten up by her pimp and was pregnant uh, in an alleyway. My client was working as a, a driver at that point in time. And uh, came upon her one day in Arizona. Sorry, Kirk, what do you mean by driver? Oh, uh, he, he he worked as a limo driver. Okay, thanks. Right. He, he, he had met her after she'd been beaten um, by what by all accounts would have been her pimp. She was pregnant. They began, the two of them began uh, a relationship, um, and he... Um, stuck with her during the pregnancy, helped support her, uh, and in fact, uh, helped her um, adopt the baby out uh, when the baby was eventually born. So they were actually in a relationship with each other. They knew each other. Um, was, th was this uh, crime then a domestic violence type situation? Well, yeah, you could probably put that spin on it, more of an atypical domestic violence situation. After the baby was born, um, from my client's perspective, she began to return to her old ways uh, and got involved with a man that he believed to be a uh, pimp. And she disappeared for several days. And the ultimate crime happened when he tracked her down to his apartment and um, shot them both in uh, his bedroom. The other, the other victim's bedroom, to be clear. Okay, so, um, so it's interesting because did they classify that as a premeditated murder? Or, I mean, because that, that sounds like the kind of circumstances that typically um, would be sort of, uh, you know, in the moment, heat of passion, all that kind of stuff. What? How did it become a a capital case? The um, well, there's a there's a couple different reasons for that. In terms of the first degree murder charge, the evidence was clear that 
my client was going to great efforts to locate the victim, the, the, the female victim, his former girlfriend, and had a gun with him when he was doing so. Um, when he exited his car and moved into the second victim's apartment, um, he obviously had his gun with him uh, when he entered into the apartment. So the assertion was that um, he was hunting her down and that uh, by the time he was seeking, seeking to uh, confront them, that uh, he had the intent to kill uh, on his mind. Okay. And so, and as, and as far as the death penalty goes, um, the, his, his past, he certainly had a, um, significant criminal history of convictions, um, both of property crimes and of violent crimes. This is your client? Yes. Okay. And so did you get this case in the original trial or did you have death penalty appeals or sentencing, um, responsibility? Well, made to back up a little bit, um, in Arizona, what happens on a death penalty case, and it's probably the case in most states across the country, that um, a person is tried and sentenced by the same jury. So what happens is that a um, uh, the jury that is impaneled to hear the guilt phase, guilt or innocence phase of the trial, also weighs in the determination on uh, life or death. And so it is one continual process. So when I was assigned to the case, um, neither process had, had taken place yet. Okay. All right. So then you basically were, you were involved in the actual trial itself. Yes. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about how that trial progressed? Well, it was it was fairly uneventful in the sense that um, the evidence there was text messages, there was efforts that he had made, calls he had made um, to track down uh, his former girlfriend. Um, so, in in essence, the, the the facts of the case were relatively cut and dry as as far as the death penalty case goes. The only issue would be. Uh, you know, his whether he had the intent to kill, there was true premeditation versus this being a moment of reflection uh, or time without reflection, excuse me, with rage taking over. Um, that was really the only issue. There was not a ton of factual dispute uh, in, in terms of the testimony. Well, Kirk, it, it sounds, for, you're going to forgive me to say, for saying this, but it sounds to me fairly cut and dried that he hunted her down and killed her. Well, Is that the, fair? The, the, jury, the, the jury definitely uh, agreed uh, with that perspective. Okay, and then how did the sentencing phase go? I mean, uh, most of our listeners, because there have been so many high-profile death penalty cases over the last decade or so are probably familiar with the process. But as you say, sentencing phase comes after the guilt-innocence phase. But really, 
It's its own mini trial. Can you talk a little bit about how that went in this case? Sure. To some extent, it is. Obviously, the jury is told to consider when they start on a death penalty case or to consider every fact that they hear both in the guilt phase and in the sentencing phase. In the uh, sentencing phase, though, there's more emphasis on who the client is. The U.S. Supreme Court has said that in order for the death penalty to survive Eighth Amendment scrutiny, which is the bar against cruel and unusual punishment, sentencing has to be individualized. So that means that uh, a defense attorney of the defense team is required to investigate someone's life from conception, meaning is there any possibility of fetal alcohol syndrome? Was mom using drugs when uh, these events, when he, when, when the client was in utero? Uh, what was his child, his or her childhood like? That sort of thing. So all those things are presented to a jury, and then they make the determination whether the aggravating factors, in this case, his prior criminal history and the fact that there were multiple victims. They weigh those against the mitigating factors of his background and uh, make a determination of what sentence is proper. So in this case, um, what, ex- what actually happened during that phase? What was, the, what, what was presented and what was the result? Sure. The bulk of uh, the presentation, the defense presentation, centered around my client's childhood. My client was raised by a mother who, um, by all accounts, and I should say my client had four or five siblings that verified this and were also kind of um, a part of the presentation. Um, Four or five siblings verified that that mom was indeed a prostitute. Uh, She was a drug addict. Um, no one could exactly verify if she was using drugs or not at, when, when she was pregnant with our client. She would turn tricks. She would um, provide her johns with access to her children uh, in exchange for drugs. She would disappear for days at a time. Johns would show up to the apartment and uh, avail themselves uh, of my client and or uh, his siblings, his sisters. It obviously a very when you very, say that could you are you saying that that she she let these johns have sex with her kids yes in exchange for drugs if they wanted access to her kids yes in exchange for money or drugs how old were these kids and how long did this go on um by all account uh, well they they certainly ranged in age but this was going on from you know as best anyone calls, somebody was five or six all the way up to the time they left the house. Needless to say, the siblings, um, by and large, were um, not functioning well as adults. Um, Many had had problems with drugs. One had gotten out of it and gotten her life together. And my client had all these issues uh, with women where he had been in and out of prison uh, most of his life. What do you mean when you say he had issues with women? Well, he had had some convictions related to uh, relationships with women, um, shooting guns up in the air. He assaulted a female that broke up with him, that sort of thing. Okay, so he's obviously got a violent history, and the jury found him guilty at the guilt-innocence phase. And at sentencing phase, it sounds like you did your best 
to mitigate, uh, present mitigation evidence showing that he had a horrible childhood and that the jury should not um, impose the death penalty basically because he had a horrible childhood. So what happened? Well, ultimately, the jury decided that the death penalty was appropriate. And I guess what makes it the worst case for me is being in that room because all his siblings were there as well. And being in that room and hearing their sobs and hearing their wails and the devastation uh, of the entire family was was a powerful moment. In fact, um, there were several jurors who were tearing up as well because of, of the power of the moment. And it was just horrible to think of, you know, if you believe in the death penalty, you think that justice was served. But when you see it on that personal level and the devastation to not only the client, but his entire family, I think it takes on a different level. And when you see jurors having to impacted by the decision they felt was best is is equally powerful. And that was a moment, I guess, when I reflect back on it, I think about it was at that moment in time that I decided that um, I, I didn't want to experience that again. And whatever, uh, you know, I was going to do, I was going to work my behind off to make sure that no other client I ever had would be sentenced to death. Well, Kirk, I I totally understand um, what you're saying, and obviously the fact that your client was, you know, so blatantly sexually victimized by uh, by the person that was supposed to be protecting him for a long period of time, although it doesn't excuse at all his killing someone, it it may explain his poor behavioral traits and the violence that he directed at women. It, it explains it, and the question is whether it mitigates the, the crimes that he did uh, or should mitigate the punishment. But I think this case, as you've pointed out, it, it sort of really um, calls to mind and, and, and puts a spotlight on the, the ripple effect of violence. Uh, I don't think there's ever a, a good result with violence. There's always somebody who's going to suffer. There's always, it doesn't just hurt the victim who gets killed or the, the, you know, family of that person, but it also affects the people that actually have no responsibility for the defendant's actions, but by virtue of relationships or family or, or whatever, they are also affected by it as well. And it's just, uh, it's it's one of the reasons why I'm not enamored of the death penalty, just because there, are, it just, it is another execution of violence. And I don't believe that violence is ever really the only answer and, and, and shouldn't be. But when you said before that uh, it has impacted you greatly at the time and continues to, to this day, can you tell us a little bit about that, how it's affected you today? Well, it, it's just it's just that vow going forward that that none of my clients would receive death, which we we saw play out later on on a, on a worldwide stage when when I began the Arias trial, but it also has continued to 
now that I'm not practicing, continue to uh, further harden uh, my opposition to the death penalty. And, and you know, there have been studies, Jim, because you talk about the residual effects of violence. There have been studies about uh, jurors in capital trial actually having uh, PTSD for um, some of what they see and some of the decisions they have to make and how that lingers with them. My suspicion is that those jurors on that case um, probably still think about the sentence that they had to give out when the death penalty comes up, when they see a death penalty case on TV. And um, I, think to, I think to myself, to what end? Um, to what, what is served uh, by that residual impact and impacting all these people um, that is not afforded someone if someone has a life sentence? The, the only true uh, countervailing benefit, I guess, that I can see is vengeance. And I think we need as a society to move uh, past vengeance and onto compassion. And um, th that has impacted me greatly just in terms of my life. And now being a cancer survivor, thinking about life and death in a, in a completely different way and, the, and how precious life can be and how short life can be and choosing to extinguish it and causing pain along the way. It just doesn't seem to be the right course of action for me. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, and when you made the choice to get into this line of work, and obviously when you made that commitment that you didn't want any of your other clients to ever be sentenced to death, um, obviously that's not something that's one predictable or or absolutely possible. But I mean, that give, that's a, a tremendous pressure and, and a responsibility because of the fact that somebody's life is in the balance and that pressure is on you. Do you think that that had any bearing on the fact that you did uh, actually, you know, get diagnosed with cancer? Because I know I did, and, and I think part of it was the stress of the work that I was doing at the time. Um, what do you think about that? I, I definitely, I definitely think that's true. I mean, I think that um, commitment to saving life, and especially, um, you know, the the last few years of my career, when it when there was so much uh, publicity surrounding uh, a death penalty case, obviously the Arias case, um, I believe that that pressure uh, was on me, and I do believe that it had a, a greatly negative effect on my health. I do believe that's why I got cancer, but that commitment that no client of mine was going to receive the death penalty without me doing my damnedest to prevent it was um, a motivating force for me uh, during that entire time. And I remain committed to, to, to that. And, but obviously my time practicing law is over because I don't feel like that commitment is something I could make any longer. Well, and yeah, so, you know, I, I can't, well, I appreciate, Kirk, so much you coming and talking about the impact this has on you. And I understand certainly what you're saying about the impact it has on you, especially because you got to know this murderer in a way that other people don't necessarily get to. Your life wasn't at risk when you were dealing with him. He was either shackled or, you know, in a, in a room with you. You were trying to save his life. So he certainly wasn't going to hurt you. Um, so I understand why you might have developed a, a, 
feelings for him, and I understand your opposition to the death penalty. Our listeners are very familiar that I am not opposed to the death penalty. In fact, I'm a proponent of the death penalty. And in this case, I have to say in particular, this offender, there's simply no question as to his guilt. Um, He hunted down and slaughtered two people in cold blood. And then you say that he said that he was abused as a child and that his family, who of course don't want to see him get the death penalty, supported his tale of being abused as a child. And I just want to say, studies have shown very clearly that the vast majority of those who are abused as children do not go on to abuse others. They certainly do not become murderers. And yet, especially in death penalty cases, almost every person facing the death penalty claims to have been abused as a child. And so I think it creates the impression, the wrong impression, in the public's mind that child abuse victims are somehow going to become psychotic monsters and that we have to beware of them. And I don't like that narrative. I'm not saying you're suggesting that narrative, but I don't like that narrative. I didn't want that to go unsaid about the studies out there and the proof about child victims generally being no more likely to abuse as adults as anyone else in the general population. And while I certainly appreciate, again, the impact this case had on you, in my opinion, the public needed to be protected from this man ultimately. And there's a great example this week in the news where a man escaped from prison and in his escape, he murdered the warden's teenage daughter. And that is one of the reasons that I am a proponent of the death penalty, because I do believe there are some people that are so dangerous, we cannot risk them ever getting out, ever being pardoned, ever escaping. And I just want to know, was it worth it to sacrifice the warden's daughter? I mean, I just don't think so. I don't think you would think that either. But those are some of the reasons that I am a proponent of the death penalty, as our listeners are well aware, after Jim and my quite lively debate. Yeah. Well, obviously, we can't get into the whole debate again, because obviously that's for another time. But um, I'm glad that we had this discussion. I'm sorry that that this case has affected you so much, other than the fact that I think it has firmed up your resolve to fight against the death penalty, um, a fight that I would join you in because I, I believe also that, and perhaps it was my, my experience with cancer and, um, and, you know, basically having to face death right in the eyes, uh, being so close to death and, and having such a small window of opportunity to make it through. Uh, I feel so much more that life is precious and, um, and do not, do not want to, take it away from anyone else, just like I don't want anyone to take it away from me. So um, I think we see the same uh, eye to eye on this, Kirk. Um, um, I do, I do uh, echo what Francie said, that victimization does not create monsters, and we don't want to leave that impression. But that wasn't the, um, the, the reason why that was brought up, I don't believe. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, Kirk, but I believe it was it was brought up not to sort of excuse his behavior, his murdering these two people, but it was brought up to perhaps uh, mitigate how he was dealt with because he was given 
um, a a very rough uh, go in life, a very rough beginning, and and perhaps never learned the proper way to interact with human beings. Not that it again excuses his behavior, but it may mitigate how um, how he should be treated. That's uh, and I think obviously the jury did not um, agree with that and. And the result is that that he was given a death penalty sentence. Yeah, you're exactly right. Ultimately, that's what the Supreme Court um, has said. That and when I when I talked about considering someone's background from conception till the day they're sentenced, um, that creates an individualized sentencing. And one of the things that the juries are instructed upon, and if if somehow I left the impression that this was an excuse, is background was an excuse, I would correct that. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that um, a jury is required to consider those things to determine if that ultimate penalty is appropriate for that person. And that's ultimately where, uh, why that evidence is presented and where that information becomes relevant to the jury because they have to understand who they're sentencing. And there are, um, studies that show the alteration that childhood abuse can have on someone's brain functioning and someone's brain chemistry, whether they grow up to actualize that violently or not, is a different issue. But those changes are made and those traumas do have an effect on different people in the way that uh, the traumas we've all experienced in our life uh, have different effects on all of us based on our constitution. So the jury is um, charged and I am tasked, when I was a defense attorney, tasked with um, putting that information before the jury and letting the jury to decide whether that ultimate penalty is appropriate. Well, we thank you, Kirk, so much for sharing this case with us and, and its effect on you and how it has sort of mobilized your uh, commitment to this issue. And I thank you for your time today. And I thank you, Francie. And for now, we're signing off on Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Terrell Parham. Music by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wondery. You can subscribe to Best Case, Worst Case on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or your favorite listening app.